I know whom I have believed and am persuaded that he is able to keep that which I have committed unto him against that day. That's a direct statement taken from 2 Timothy 1, verse number 12. And what a blessing it is to be able to hymn words of confidence and assurance and words of such great victory as that one. As always, we're thankful for the presence of each and every one this evening, for our membership and our visitors alike. And it's our true and our earnest expectation that we each can magnify and glorify the name of God as we, in fact, engage in this worship in spirit and in truth. This evening, as we continue our journey through the Word of God, we, of course, here at the Pippin Congregation this year have set before ourselves to read through the fullness of the Word of God. And as of this point, we have arrived, as you can see, at some 984 complete chapters. And most recently in the Old Testament, our reading has centered in the book of Jeremiah. And so tonight, our lesson will be extracted from some passages taken from that 29th chapter of the book of Jeremiah. I would encourage you to be turning there and looking again at those verses that Joe read for us just a moment ago, verses 10 to 14 of that 29th chapter. As we build a lesson considering some of the thoughts presented in those verses, I believe we'll each be reminded again of just how marvelous, fantastic, and how truly exquisite is that faith even as it was vouchsafed and described in those days of the Old Testament. Today, as we come to the bottom of that slide, perhaps it'd be fair to comment that as was true of so many of those prophets of the Old Testament, souls that were courageous, brave, very much dedicated to that which was the will of God, regardless of what the consequences might be for themselves. Case in point, Jeremiah. More than once in this book of Jeremiah, he will be cast into a dungeon cast into a prison house of that ancient day, which was far from comfortable and far from pleasant. And yet, there he was, simply because he spoke God's Word. He was no thief. He was no criminal. He was not even a traitor, though they accused him of such. He was simply courageous and bold enough to preach the Word of God, and they didn't like it even a little bit. No wonder as you come to the bottom of that slide. You'll notice it does prepare us for a remarkable passage, the one just read a moment ago. Let's first begin by considering the setting of that particular passage. And as we do so, it'll prepare us to look more considerably and in a more detailed fashion at some of those matters we're about to see. You see, the matter we find really from chapter 26 on to chapter 29 here in Jeremiah was a straightforward and earnest consideration. Jeremiah, that prophet of God that was so bold and true, over against what others were saying. I've couched that in the following sets of language. We learn very clearly in Jeremiah 27, 14 that there were some prophets of that day who were proclaiming messages that themselves were not messages from God. In fact, God more than once would directly say, I never sent them. What they were saying was not the truth of God. It often was words that men liked to hear, frankly, and it was often matters that buoyed them up and encouraged them to what they thought was the message they desired. But God specifically told Jeremiah, I never sent them. They are not my prophets. As those kinds of statements redound in our thinking, the message now leads us to the message that God provided to them, the Babylonians. If I might paraphrase it like this, 
People like Jeremiah, those straightforward and bold prophets of God, were of the disposition to say, Babylon is coming. We will not survive this in the sense that they will capture us. They are, in fact, going to do so thoroughly and completely, and it is the will of God that it happened. That kind of message was so undesired. The people were just unwilling to accept it. In fact, there were other prophets, and these were their messages. Most of them were saying, we will not be captured at all. God will never let it happen. Others were saying, even if we are, we will only be gone to Babylon for a little while. Two years at most. But you'll notice what a great difference that was to the message Jeremiah was proclaiming. At this point, you and I will notice... God even now specifically called Nebuchadnezzar. He called him by name. The Babylonian monarch Nebuchadnezzar is coming. Not only that, God called him my servant. That must have been totally unacceptable to the people of the day. Here is a heathen man, and yet, Jeremiah, you're claiming that he is God's servant? God is even through you proclaiming him to be the servant of God? I'm sure we each can gain a feeling for just how startling and stunning a message that must have been. And yet, as the saga continues, we now find the following matter play out before us. Remember, at the time that this section in Jeremiah was written, the Babylonians had already come the first time. They had already hauled off into captivity some of those that were Jews. Now, the city had not been destroyed yet, and the temple had not been burned and ransacked yet, but some of the people had already been taken captive. Here was the thought. Some of those captives were now thinking, well, surely our captivity is about to end. Surely this cannot go on much longer. God will bring us home. It is into that context we find Jeremiah 29. Jeremiah wrote a letter. He wrote a letter and addressed it to those people that were already taken captive. You may in fact notice some of the specific language included in that letter. I would direct you to verse number 4 of Jeremiah 29. Thus saith the Lord of hosts, and this is the words of that letter, The God of Israel unto all them that are carried away captives, whom I have caused to be carried away from Jerusalem to Babylon, Build ye houses, and dwell in them, and plant gardens, and eat the fruit of them. Take ye wives, and beget sons and daughters, and take wives for your sons, and give your daughters to husbands, that they may bear sons and daughters, that ye may be increased there, and not diminished. And seek the peace of the city, whither I have caused you to be carried away captives, and pray unto the Lord for it, for in the peace thereof shall ye have peace. For thus saith the Lord... Of hosts, the God of Israel, let not your prophets and your diviners that be in the midst of you deceive you, neither hearken to your dreams which ye cause to be dreamed, for they prophesy falsely unto you in my name. I have not sent them, saith the Lord. For thus saith the Lord, that after seventy years be accomplished at Babylon, I will visit you, and perform my good word toward you in causing you to return to this place." For I know the thoughts that I think toward you, saith the Lord, thoughts of peace and not of evil, to give you an expected end. Then shall ye call upon me, and ye shall go and pray unto me, and I will hearken unto you. And ye shall seek me and find me when ye shall search for me with all your heart. 
And I will be found of you, saith the Lord, and I will turn again your captivity. And I will gather you from all the nations and from all the places whither I have driven you, saith the Lord. And I will bring you again unto the place whence I caused you to be carried away captive. Did you notice with me the rather innocent statement included in that letter? The people were under the impression that this was not going to last long. We will soon go home and... God said, 70 years, not a day less. 70 years is how long you're going to be there. So you just as well get used to it. You just as well acclimate yourself to the surroundings of Babylon because there's where you're going to be. You can only imagine, again, the way in which that letter was received by some. Very harshly, very defensively, almost in disbelief. But yet the letter was sent by the God of heaven through the hand of the prophet Jeremiah. As you and I close that slide and highlight again 70 years it was going to be. You and I know, of course, many of them would pass away long before then. They would not survive for 70 more years, but their descendants, God promised something very exquisite and very special. Let's move from that point to appreciate some of the fine details of that letter. Beginning in verse number 10. That after 70 years be accomplished at Babylon, I will visit you and perform my good word towards you in causing you to return to this place. God did hold out a beacon of joyous hope and a beacon of marvelous return. There will come a time I will visit you and you will be blessed to be able to return to this place. Jerusalem, that place they held so dear to their thinking and their heart. Notice, I know the thoughts, God would say in verse number 11. For I know the thoughts that I think toward you. Remarkable, isn't it, to hear God make a statement like that. You and I, I'm sure, know well that our God is infinite in His knowledge and His wisdom and His understanding. But here, with a very specific thought in mind, God made this special statement. I know the thoughts that I think concerning you. Each and every one of us is an individual, obviously. We have our aspirations and our dreams. There's our backgrounds, our individual livelihoods. There are the individuals that you and I specifically are. Here was a people. They had been purchased by the nature of God Himself. They had been brought out of Egyptian captivity. They had been prepared as that class and group of people through whom the Messiah would one day come. But there were some more years to go before the fruition of that. And yet on this occasion, God would say, I know the thoughts that I think toward you. That seems to suggest very powerfully that God had a very special purpose and mission for them. And He intended them to fulfill it. And He was going to provide and make matters for them by way of provision so that that could be accomplished. I've stated that in language like these. Doesn't it remind us of that very special direction that God takes often throughout the Bible toward you and me individually? Might we be quick to say, God knows the thoughts toward you and I individually. He does love you, and He does love me. In fact, He sent His Son out of that provision of love for each and every human being that has ever lived. 
and yea, that shall ever live until time shall be no more. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. Borrowing the language of our Lord Himself in John 3.16. Wasn't it true in 1 John? We also read about the magnitude and the nature of that love of God. Herein is love, not that we love God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. That wording found somewhat both in chapters 2 and 4 of that book. Help us see that that love of God was shown to you and I very carefully. I've asked you to think of it perhaps like this. You'll notice that one of the special features that was mentioned here, God says, I know the thoughts I think concerning you. What thoughts, God? What have you thought concerning Israel? What might He have thought concerning you and me today? He says, verse number 11, thoughts of peace. Amazing, isn't it? God thought thoughts of peace for ancient Israel. He intended them to know peace. He made provision that they might know it. He, in fact, prepared all things such that thoughts of peace would redound among them and that peace would be thorough and, and, and entire. But you'll notice he quickly says, and not of evil. The fact that Israel then was in captivity, or at least part of them were, and the thought that there was more captivity to come later, that was no reflection on God's failing of love toward them. That was rather reflection upon their refusal to submit to Him and the punishment and wrath that came their way because of it. What a letter that must have been to hear those words read. But isn't it true that there was a ray of hope, a powerful reflection on the nature of the God that did love them? You'll notice as we come to the bottom of that slide, doesn't that speak a great deal about sometimes matters that encumber your life or mine? Think about worry for just a moment. I suppose we live in a time, and maybe the human family has always been bothered by it, the thought of worry. We're worried about what we're going to do. The cost of living's going up. The government seems as though there's problems on every hand. International affairs seemingly worsen by the, by the week. Issues that surround us in light of all those things, if one were to allow it to be so, the degree of worry therefrom would be such that our hairs would be gray or perhaps would be no more after having fallen out so quickly. The word worry, by the very nature of its definition, means that which divides the mind. The whole basis of worry is the mind is divided as its attention is spread and shared among those matters competing for such attention. And yet our Lord, in the midst of the issues of His own day, could very powerfully and straightforwardly affirm in Matthew chapter 6 about the nature that the Christian has no need to worry about things like that. For after all, we know that there is one in control. And we know that His power and His majesty and His will shall be accomplished. Isn't it true that we learn throughout the Word of God the sovereignty of God? He is in control of the affairs of the nations and He is in control of the features even related to the properties of the planet upon which you and I walk. 
There was, in fact, an excellent article in the bulletin today, timed rather interestingly with tonight's lesson. The nature taken from the quotation of the last verse of Genesis chapter 8, where as Noah and his family stepped off that ark to a world very different than what had been the case before. Nonetheless, a world to which God made the promise that seed time and harvest and cold and heat shall continue. It shall not cease. There may be minor disruptions in things with volcanoes and earthquakes and the like, but our God is in control of the chemical, the physical, the geologic features of this planet. And you might notice God says, I know the thoughts that I think towards you. Thoughts of peace and not of evil. The peacefulness that's characteristic of the bottom of that slide remind us so often, doesn't it, that our sojourn here in this flesh, though often potentially encumbered with these matters about us, is nonetheless something to which if we refuse to allow the mind to be divided, set worry aside and understand that there is one far greater than we in control of these things. And if we by faith will pursue and live in those matters that God sets before us, all shall be well. In Proverbs chapter number 3, Trust in the Lord with all thine heart, and lean not unto thine own understanding. Acknowledge Him in all thy ways, and He shall direct thy paths. Acknowledge Him in all thy ways. That was, you see, the issue that had troubled anxious to Judah so much, wasn't it? They had not acknowledged Him. And several times in the book of Jeremiah, God makes that point plain. They have turned to every other source of strength, of might, of direction besides me. They have looked to themselves. They've looked to the surrounding nations. They've looked to the various idols of the land. They've looked everywhere but to me. God says, for that reason, I have now allowed them to suffer the doom of their own choices. You and I today still can be our own worst enemy, frankly. When you and I will follow the Lord without interruption, following Him with dedication and devotion, we will understand He will be there as a providing one to assist us through this life. But when we turn aside... When we look elsewhere, when we seek our own way, just like Judah did, we're headed for trouble. As that slide closes, you'll notice, doesn't it remind us of the sweetness of James 1.13 and following? Where there we learn, let no man say when he is tempted, I am tempted of God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, neither tempteth he any man. But every man is tempted when he is drawn away of his own lust and enticed, then when lust hath conceived, it bringeth forth sin. Sin, when it is finished, bringeth forth death. As that statement is provided for us there, I know the thoughts I think to you. You'll notice as we consider those thoughts somewhat even further, starting there at the top of that slide, we've already, no already noticed some of those reflections from Matthew chapter 6. At the end of the chapter is the statement we noticed earlier. But notice verse 13 is closer to the beginning of that chapter. In that prayer, our Savior, of course, taught His own apostles to pray. A part of that was, Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil, for Thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. May I ask you to consider, it is in that context we find 
the very title I gave the lesson tonight. Those thoughts that God had toward them. He says, thoughts of peace and not of evil, to give you an expected end. I find that interesting. The beautiful ray of hope that was resting on the horizon. In the midst of when things sometimes look dark and sometimes look bleak, may you and I as Christians recognize there is hope in the latter end. You may even observe that some translations read that slightly differently. The King James translation reads it, to give you an expected end. But again, the, the perhaps closer rendering uses that word hope to tie on to that opening word of that, of that statement, hope in the latter end. If you and I want tomorrow to be brighter than today, if we want next week, next month, next year to be brighter than today, then there is a thoroughfare and a passage like this one lets us know that there is one in control of tomorrow and there is one in control of next week. And there's one who knows all about next year, whatever that may bring. Don't you and I want to be safely in His hand? Allowing Him to guide the details and the specifics. And you and I simply appreciate that by virtue of faith and by virtue of confidence in His promises. We can know. We don't have to wait 70 years to pass, I might add. You'll notice one of the last statements the promises that lead us to consider even verses like these. In the closing two verses of Hebrews chapter 6, we notice that we have an anchor of the soul, steadfast and sure. As often as we've seen pictures on the news about ships whose anchors broke loose or who in fact failed to drop the anchor at all, and that particular vessel was blown every way the wind or the waves chose to carry it, and yet, you and I are described as such that with faith we have an immovable anchor, steadfast and sure. And the steadfastest and surety you may notice from that context is anchored in the reality of not only Christ Jesus and not only what He accomplished here, but where He now is. Perhaps this then is the right time to ask all of us in a very personal way, what about the details of your life? Are you encumbered with worry to the point that you just have a sense all is not well? You feel a lacking in that confidence that you feel that the Bible promises that you should know. There have been many, no doubt, whose faith has crumbled to the point that they've walked away from the church altogether and have never returned because they didn't feel that comfort and assurance in life that they knew God promised. The fault isn't His. It lies in the failure on the part of you or me or others perhaps who have not embodied issues like what we find in the passage before us tonight. In fact, as we go beyond that, look at what some one of the issues was that troubled those ancient people of Judah so much. We mentioned it earlier tonight, but perhaps you'll notice God mentions it to them again in verse 9 of this very chapter, Jeremiah 29. He says, for they prophesy falsely unto you. There were individuals that were troubling the people of Judah. They were preaching what sounded so fine and so good. The only problem, it wasn't true. And yet the people of Judah listened. Many of them listened intently. Many of them listened with urgency and earnestness. 
That didn't change the fact that it wasn't true. May we learn an additional lesson. Sincerity alone does not guarantee truthfulness. Sincerity alone does not guarantee that it's right. Many an individual has perhaps been motivated with a keen element in, in, in desire, a keen element in sincerity, but as it was with ancient Judah, God said, I never said that. When you and I turn the pages into the New Testament, in Romans chapter 10, we find the Apostle Paul making a comment somewhat reminiscent of that. Paul there said, Brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they might be saved. For I bear them record that they have a zeal of God, but not according to knowledge. For they, being ignorant of God's righteousness and going about to establish their own righteousness, have not submitted themselves unto the righteousness of God. Were those individuals on that occasion zealous? The text says they were. Were they enthusiastic and energetic? No doubt. Were they perhaps motivated and compelled to understand we are the ones that are in position with this direct relationship with God? The problem? It wasn't so. Their zeal was directed without knowledge. What a tragedy. What an eternal tragedy. No wonder you and I, this danger, false hope, has been a problem for the human family since the very dawn of time. In Psalm 146, verse number 3, the prophet said, Man's help is not in man. You and I know that we certainly seek, if we're wise, for a far more assured and confident and correct and truthful source than, than the human family himself. Maybe finally you'll notice that one of the things that this false hope does I find it intriguing the way Proverbs 13, 12 describes it. It describes it as a hollowness of the Spirit. Have you yourself or have you known someone? And the very issues we're describing tonight were a part of their life. They have allowed themselves to be overwhelmed and their faith has just shrunk. They simply aren't the kind of people that you perhaps once remember as jolly, as happy, as internally sufficient as what, as what you might have appreciated. Maybe we've all experienced something like that on occasion. May we never forget a part of it could well be the issues we're facing in our lesson this evening. Perhaps in light of that, you'll notice this as well. This danger of false hope leads me to ask you to consider some of the statements from the Master Himself. The ultimate source of that hope that He holds out for you and for me. I would point you to thinking about 2 Timothy 1, verse number 12, as well as 1 Timothy 1, verse number 1. In each of these places we find a description. And though you and I appreciate it may be seemingly so innocently presented, it's nonetheless an anchor and a powerful one that served as the guide for Paul's life. And we know how strong he apparently was. Maybe that strength is also seen by these encouragements. I'd like to ask you to reflect at least in passing on passages like these. Psalm 55 verse 22. We know from a verse like that one, God will never suffer the righteous to be moved. Cast thy burden upon the Lord, and He shall sustain thee. He shall never suffer the righteous to be moved. 
If you're bearing some heavy burdens at the moment, may I ask, have you cast them upon the shoulders of the one who can withstand them? Have you allowed him to assist you and to help you? I feel sure that one of the strong temptations that each of us face is when these issues in life come, we want to do it ourselves. I can handle this. When may I say our first thought ought to rush to God in prayer and to lay it upon Him and to beseech Him for wisdom in knowing how to deal with this so that it will redound unto the greater glory for ourselves, our families, and those we love. What an avenue and what a strength that verse is. Consider 1 Peter 5, 7, a New Testament comparison, or at least close cousin to it. Casting all your care upon Him, for He careth for you. You and I as Christians are not in position to go it alone. We know that our family is there by our side and we love them and appreciate them, but all of us can so easily look to the one who we are told we should cast our cares upon Him. He does love you. Might you also notice that text in Philippians 4, 6. We find there this interesting statement that ties much of what we've learned tonight together so well. That statement of Philippians 4, verse 6, reminding us about the joy that we can feel and the fact that worry should not be that which divides us as it so often tends to do. You'll notice that leads us to a statement I've entitled, Promise. Back to the verses, verses 11 and following of Jeremiah 29. I know the thoughts that I think towards you, saith the Lord, thoughts of peace and not of evil, to give you an expected end. Then shall you call upon me, and you shall go and pray unto me, and I will hearken unto you. God promised that for that local time they were in captivity, and there they were going to be for seven decades. Then, in verse number 12, He says, Then... When those 70 years are up, then you'll call on me and I will be found of you. You may notice though verse 13 describes it with an amazing presentation. I'd invite you to look at it again with me. And ye shall seek me and find me when ye shall search for me with all your heart. God promised they would find Him when and only when they searched with all their heart, with all of their intensity, and with all the desire of setting aside what their own preconceived ideas might be. The world labors, doesn't it, beneath preconceived notions and ideas. We want God to march to our drum when just the opposite's the way it must be. We must march to His drum and we must follow His commandments. After all, He is God and we are not. No wonder when you think about those promises, He promised to hear them. What about your prayer life and mine? Are you confident that God hears you? Is your life such that it is an open reflection of what He would have you to be and therefore you can rest assured in His promise to hear you? Or is your life sufficiently called into question that you just are not sure? If you aren't sure of that, why leave this building tonight in that kind of condition? May I ask, if God is our Heavenly Father, think about going to your earthly father. Do you feel comfortable asking Him? 
beseeching Him for advice, wondering what His wisdom on a certain point might be. I hope we all would feel comfortable enough to approach our earthly father that way. Do you feel confident approaching God, asking Him as you being His child and He your heavenly Father? If you're not, may I ask, what does a verse like this one suggest? Here was a group of people. For seven decades, they were going to be in this place. They were to remember, though, that as long as they would attempt and remind themselves and be faithful, that when those 70 years were up, God would bless them by returning them to that land, Jerusalem, and they'd be able to go back home. Thankfully, we do read about other books in the Old Testament that give us the details. The book of Ezra shows us they did go back home. The book of Nehemiah reminds us they did build the wall of Jerusalem again. And prophets like Zechariah and Haggai inform us that God still had messages for them even after they returned home. No wonder as we think about the matter of promise. May we say God wasn't distant from them. He knew very well where they were. And He knows very well where you, I, where you and I are as well in our life. He knows whether we're following or whether we're only playing lip service. He knows where your heart is and He knows where it's not. And He knows the same for me. I hope this very evening, if all of us will reflect upon these promises, among other things, it will let us know that there is a God who is not far from every one of us. That sounds a great deal like the words that Paul preached with such boldness in the city of Athens in the midst of the first century in Acts 17. That God of heaven who in fact Paul said, He's not far from every one of us. As you close that slide with me, this matter, the condition of finding God is to search for Him with all of our heart. Matt led us in prayer a moment ago in which he included a statement like that one in it. A desire to pursue and to seek God with all that is our being, all that is that which is you and me. No wonder as you come to the top of that slide, I would ask you to think of some final thoughts and then the lesson shall be yours. When you contemplate these people who are now in captivity receiving a letter, a letter that had in it some things no doubt they were not excited to hear, but it was a letter of love in many ways from God to them. Their iniquities and their sins had brought them to that place. And there were some more difficult moments ahead. But on the horizon was some good, good times. Are there, hori- or is there good times on your horizon tonight? If you're a faithful Christian, safe to say the answer is yes. For although there may be some difficult moments in life, there is one walking with you, slightly ahead of you, I might add, who is leading the way toward a blessed place of reward, a place you and I often recognize as called heaven. However, if you aren't able to see what's on the horizon, if the cloudiness of the day and of the time is sufficient to have covered your eyes so that that is not apparent... You need to appreciate the hope in a a text like this one. Although it was originally written for ancient Israel, you and I can find principles in the New Testament that embody so much of these matters. In 2 Timothy 4, beginning in verse number 6, Paul said, I'm now ready to be offered, and the time of my departure is at hand. I have fought a good fight. 
I have finished my course. I have kept the faith. Henceforth there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord the righteous judge shall give me at that day, and not to me only, but unto all of them also that love is appearing. As Paul, seemingly in the very shadow of his own earthly demise, could make a statement like that one, a statement reminding himself and all of us by inspiration of the fact that his battles were just about over. But he knew in the light of that faithfulness that there was a crown of righteousness waiting. What a hope rested on his horizon. What about your horizon and what about mine? The questions do come to us personally. I can't answer for you, nor can you for me. But we can answer for ourselves, and we know by comparison to the Word of God what that answer is. Is your answer as it should be and is mine? As we conclude the lesson, we've noticed that the state of Judah at the time was a very mixed bag. Some of them had already been taken captive. Some would be shortly taken captive yet. And the destruction of Jerusalem was not many years into the future. The days ahead were not going to be terribly pleasant for those clinging to that which they thought. But if they were to cling to what God said, all would ultimately be okay. What a promise of reward on the horizon. Tonight, that kind of matter can be yours and mine if you and I are a faithful Christian. We know that we have waiting for us a tremendous and grand set of blessings far sweeter than anything this earth has to offer. But if we choose to trust in something or someone else, then you know that we are falling into the same kind of predicament that ancient Judah did. No wonder those final thoughts. I know the thoughts concerning you. If you and I want peace in our future and if we want not evil in the future. We need to try to follow those thoughts that God has for us. We need to let Him be the guiding motivation. Are you? And am I? If you're not a Christian tonight, having never been baptized into Christ, then at this point, if you have reached an age of knowing wrong from right and knowing that Christ died for you and knowing that at this point in sin you're lost, you need to do something about it this evening. Don't wait for a more convenient day. It may never come. Tonight, today is the day of salvation. 2 Corinthians 6 verse 2. This very evening, that plan of salvation rather simply reads, Believe in Jesus as the Son of God. Have confidence that He is exactly who He said that He was. Upon that belief, it should prompt you and shall prompt you to repent of those sins, those things that have separated you from God. Isaiah 59 verses 1 and 2. At that point then, you're prepared to make a public confession so that others can be convinced too of what you now have in your heart, a confidence in Christ as the Son of God and an intent and willingness to follow Him all the days of your life. Upon that, you're then a candidate for scriptural baptism in which you in water are buried and in that burial, the old man of sin, of course, as it's now dead, it, it is in fact buried and you rise a new creature in Christ. If you have attended to that need, but no longer are faithful to that vocation, you know that things are not right and things are amiss. Why not come back to your first love? Thankfully, there is a second law of pardon. That which is commanded of you, repent of those sins. 
And in an attribute of belief, you believe that God will forgive them if you will approach Him with them. And you confess them in that act of repentance. He has promised to forgive the prayers of those that petition Him on your behalf. If we could pray with you tonight, we'd be delighted to do it. If we could help in either of these ways, don't delay. Don't procrastinate, but come because God knows the thoughts He has concerning you. Thoughts of peace and not of evil. And won't you come? Fall together we stand and sing.